Mike, check one, two. Check mine? Yeah, why don't you talk into yours a minute? Hey, what's your name? Uh, my name is Kent. Hi, Kent. What's your name? Doreen. Do you have any interesting customer service stories where... Well, we've had quite a few. Oh, nice of you to join us, I was, I was Nordstrom. Getting, I was getting some pictures. Yeah, sure. You're a celebrity. How does that feel? Uh, well, feels good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom, and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. Well, folks, we've made it through another year, which also happens to mark the completion of one whole year of the Nordy Pod. And I gotta say, this whole thing kind of started as a bit of an experiment, but over the past year, we've accumulated a lot of really great insight from the amazing guests that have graciously agreed to come on the show. We've heard the wisdom of industry titans like Mickey Drexler of J. Crew and The Gap, Doug Mack, the CEO of Commerce for Fanatics, Chip Berg, CEO of Levi's, and Leonard Lauder of Estee Lauder. We've heard the incredible success stories of entrepreneurs like Joe Kudla of Viore, Joe Zwillinger of Allbirds, Jessica Alba of The Honest Company, Andy Dunn of Bonobos, Steve Madden of the famous shoe brand by the same name, Aurora James of Brother Vellies, and Emma Greed of Good American. I've also really enjoyed diving into a few of my personal interests, scratching my musical itch through CEO of Sub Pop, Megan Jasper, and Chris Ballou, former singer of the band The Presidents of the United States of America and feeding my passion for sports through Jen Cohen, the athletic director at my alma mater, the University of Washington, and WNBA superstar Sue Bird. In addition, I've really enjoyed chatting with Nordstrom employees and customers from across the country to hear about their experiences with our company. It's been a really fun, interesting journey, so to celebrate the first anniversary of the Nordy Pod, we thought we'd take you on a little trip down memory lane to visit some of our favorite moments from 2022. us off, I want to highlight one of the main themes we've intentionally focused on since the conception of the NordyPod, which is leadership. As the president of a public company that has 70,000 employees, I have a lot of people counting on me and others here to make wise decisions. So I'm always on the lookout for new ideas from people that I think do an exceptional job managing large teams because I want to continuously improve my own leadership skills. The world is full of varied opinions on this subject. But here are a few examples of people whose philosophy I really admire. We talk a lot around here about really it's the sum of your experiences that make you effective as a leader and stuff. So talk a little bit about that. So you you get this job, it's like the yeah. dream job. You have some success yeah. out of the gate. You know, things are going well. But talk about like the adversity part of that yeah. and like what you've learned from that and how perhaps that's made you even better at your job today. I remember when I got the job and Chris Peterson, former football coach of ours, who's, you know, very engaged in the community now, he asked me right away, like, how are you doing? And I said, I just I'm so uncomfortable. Like, this sucks. 
I'm miserable. Like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'm uncomfortable all the time. And he's like, welcome to leadership. Like, that's going to be the rest of your life. Do you know what's interesting? I'm always concerned about keeping it up. So like you're living and dying with every, every sale, right. every item, 100%. is it working or not and, working? And, I, and even today, it's really rocking and rolling. It's going really well, but I'd still go home every day worried. And I, I, I think, I don't know how you feel with, for me, a lot, too much worry goes along with all this. I think I first started to develop my leadership style in college, in large part because of Coach Ariyama. He, um, at one point, asked me to go in his office, sat me down, and he was basically like, trying to teach me that everything that happened on the court was my fault. Everything that happened on the court was my responsibility. So even if, you know, Jane over there threw the ball out of bounds, that, that's my fault. And I think what he was just trying to tap into was he could see how my personality was, right? He knew that I had relationships with everyone on the team. Sometimes clicks form on teams or three people are closer than the next three and whatever, but I was kind of, I was friends with everybody and he kind of saw that. And for me to be able to use that to my advantage would be to really kind of like invest in those friendships, invest in those relationships. The way I like to frame it is you kind of build this relationship equity and you're just basically putting deposits in that bank every day, right? In each individual, like each, each teammate's bank and also like the team as a collective. And then from there, when you need to cash out, if you will, which to me is you have to say something hard, you've already built that relationship where you can say the hard things. They go, okay, cool. They don't think it's not like, oh God, Sue's so annoying. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. they know I'm coming from a good place. I used to take all the sales reports and write the commission check to the lady who was selling our products. And I wrote them a little note congratulating them, telling them how good they were and how important they were to me. I would sit home at night writing those notes. And those people stayed with us for many, many, many years because someone recognized how good they were. As a leader, I want to always recognize my folks. And of course, I think we all try to stay on top of that. When you have folks that do incredible things, you don't want to have them feel like, oh, it's just another day. But I, I always hold my hand to my heart and tell folks, if you are listening to what you're feeling right here, that is the right decision for the situation in taking care of your customer. Because you have to trust your instincts, you have to trust the customer, and you have to listen. My thing is really trying to give the right level of context that empowers our teams to make their own calls and their own decisions. I'm definitely not someone that's trying to be in every decision making every call. I don't think I'm always close enough to the customer or the business to, to do that. I think uh, that's why we have kind of fantastic merchandising teams out there making those calls. But also it ladders back to a bigger strategy, a bigger idea, so that it does all kind of come together at some point. And getting that balance is, is tricky, but something that we spend a lot of time trying to get right. Always talking about the company's values is how you embed it through the organization. But then your actions have to be consistent with your words. 
always trying to do the right thing, the harder right over the easier wrong, being really clear about the decisions that you're making. But the important thing is consistency, always being consistent about how you talk about the values, how you show up as an individual and how the company shows up as a company. Anybody that becomes a CEO, the biggest challenge is being connected with the thing that you care the most about. You know, you get the job, you get that opportunity because somewhere along the way, you were the most connected to purpose. And yet when you're in the chair, you've got all these different demands coming your way and it's easy to lose sight of the purpose. So for me, it's so simple. You know, I'm, I'm not a big meeting person. And so I started to do walking meetings, like kind of forcing my staff out of their offices. And it's amazing the things you learn, yes. you know, and you have to learn from your people. Take a moment and not be at your desk and remember why we're all doing this. Like it's for the customer. And when you're here and looking at product and seeing what's working or where there's opportunities, it's like grandpa, uh, grandpa, literally every time I see him and talk about work, he's like, well, have you walked the floor? I'm like, yes, <laughs> but if I don't do it daily, it's not enough for him. But, you know, he always says like the people in the store are the most important employees and to try to connect with them more. And I agree. I think it's how does this feel? How does the customer feel in it? What is that reaction? And you definitely have to be in person to get the other side. Well, you're, you're not the only person that hears that. He still tells Eric and I all the time. I remember vividly when I was young, hearing my dad talk about answering your own phone. Like, you know, I heard that a lot. And I remember, you know, he told a story, he was talking with some retailer, maybe from a different country and they were doing a show and tell. And my dad said to him is, he goes, well, do you answer your own phone? Goes, well, of, co of course I don't answer my own phone. I've got a secretary who does that for me. He goes, well, if you're not answering your own phone, then none of the rest of the stuff that I just told you is gonna make any difference. Cause you gotta support your people and your customers. And if you don't make through your words and actions, the point that your customers and your frontline folks are the most important, then all the brilliant strategies aren't going to work. Corporations shouldn't be corporate and they should be open and the big bosses like yourself should be totally accessible and someone people can talk to. I was on the Apple board for 16 years and I idolized Steve. But the one thing I did criticize him for, he wasn't happy with me, is he was in his own world at times. So I said, Steve, we went into a busy elevator. I said, you gotta say hello to these people. <laughs> and you know, I said, you are you, but he didn't appreciate that. But yeah. anyway, if you're there and accessible as a boss, you're gonna always have a better company and people who enjoy the experience much more. To me, that's, this is what leadership is. It is like a complete selflessness to give to others, but a complete self-awareness to keep growing, like an accountability to keep getting better. And so to me, leadership, what we're doing, what you're doing, what I'm doing, like we have to be intentional about this because we have such an impact on other people and how they see themselves. And if we aren't good, other people around us aren't gonna be good. So aside from being an effective leader, another essential skill to running a successful business is being a good team player, not only with our colleagues, but with different companies we choose to partner with. As a retailer, we're in business with a lot of different brands, and as you might imagine, it's not just all about the transactional aspect of the business. We pay close attention to the quality of our interactions on a personal level because the success of our business really depends on that partnership. There's a saying that I've used 
which is silly, but I think it sums up my point of view. I've got two ears to listen and one mouth to talk with. If God wanted us to talk more than listen, he would have given us two mouths. So whenever I meet with the people at Nordstrom, I listen to what they needed. If you can't listen, you can't learn. Partnerships like Nordstrom are so important because I can just share from my experience that I think you guys are doing a great job. You guys are willing to be in the conversation. You're willing to listen to what's important to us. And, you know, in the early days, it's easier because you're pushing stuff into the channel. You're begging Nordstrom, give us a chance, give us a chance. Now, pretty much every large department store in the U.S. is interested in doing business. So we say no a lot. We want to nurture the businesses that we're already in to be in great relationships with the people that we choose to be in business with. You know, you were really seen as this retailer with this exceptional service element. And I knew that if I was making denim in 15 sizes, somebody was going to need to explain that to customers, to be like, you know, my voice when I wasn't around. And so it was probably one of the best decisions that we ever made to launch with Nordstrom. And that's why actually, you know, you really were my first call. I was like, Nordstrom will get this. Like Pete Nordstrom is about supporting young entrepreneurs and they will understand why not only is this a good thing to do, but why it matters and why it's a thing to put some resource behind. Once we realized that brick and mortar was gonna be a part of our model, I didn't wanna wait a decade to have national reach. So I thought, well, who takes care of the customer? Who pays on time? Who addresses a similar segment in the market? And the interesting thing about it was the only retailer I can think of was Nordstrom. There was like no other retailer I was excited about. And it really broadened our reach. I can remember opening a Bonobos guide shop and two people approached me, a father, son, and I kind of went to the son and I was like, how'd you hear about us? He had discovered the brand through Nordstrom. And I think what I've come to tell entrepreneurs in my position is the best marketing for your business is wholesale. You know, the best way to commercialize your brand in the market is to sell it. So I think there are these moments where like you're first getting going and you think you're just doing everything differently. And then life and experience have a way of teaching you that you might be doing some new things, but that you got to pay attention to people that have been at this for a long time and you really got to meld both of those things. And I think that's what the great companies do. I don't want to sound like I lack any humility here, but like most of the retailers have called us at some point in the last six years and said, I'm hey, sure we love they to sell have. your shoes. Like, yeah. And so, and we've always been, you know, been very polite because we, we knew um, that in the future we, we may want to work with them, but we haven't chosen to do that yet on an ongoing basis because we wanted to make sure that we could show up right for that consumer. So what we thought we would do is look at the consumers that we really want to meet that we haven't met and what kind of credibility do we need to get from a retail partner so that when our customer walks in, you know, it's if I said that I'm a nice guy, maybe you'd believe me, but if you Pete told them I was a nice guy, they'd be like, "Oh, Pete thinks he's a nice guy." Okay, he probably is a nice guy then. Uh, and and to be candid with you, I think it's going to help our vertical business quite a lot. The way we ran our company was not just profit, growth. Because if we grew, you grew. Partners have to work that way. If we made money and you didn't, that was wrong. We had to grow together side by side. And that made me feel a kinship with Nordstrom's and the Nordstrom family. One thing that I learned from sports in general, also for, I played 10 years overseas in Europe. It's kind of this idea. You have to come from a place of respect versus coming from a place of conflict, I guess. Let me put it this way. When I walk in the locker room, 
And, you know, if we have three players from Europe, you know, five black players, two white players and fill in the blank the rest. I'm not walking in there going like, oh, I don't see color and <laughs> I don't see different religion. No, I do see it. Yeah. Of course we see it. We all see it. Right. It's that you walk in understanding that we're different and you come from a place of respect in that. And that's really what playing overseas taught me the most. Because, yeah, I could go. I played in Russia for 10 years. I could land in Moscow and every five seconds be like, oh, my God, that's different. And oh, my God, this is different. You could do that left and right. Or you could just be like, okay, they do it different. And like, let me kind of like see what that's about and live in this culture in, in their ways. A lot of times people, the world that we're living in now is like so individualized. It's like, I want everything else to change around me to cater <laughs> to my exact individual experience that I'm having. And like, that is not gonna change the world. We are not going to solve problems that way. I fundamentally in my heart believe it because I've seen it over and over again. Success, accomplishment, performances that you never could have imagined only happen consistently with people working together. Now I want to turn to a segment dedicated to all of the remarkable employees that have graciously shared their experiences working at Nordstrom. Recognizing these individuals is one of my favorite parts of this show and an important part of creating a culture built on values, which is really what makes this business tick. So Milo and George, two young men who were very respectful and had a passion for retail and fashion in general. Uh, they came in on a day of a drop and we luckily actually had a size extra small left um, in the little sweatsuit. So it was like a cream matching sweatsuit. So Milo really wanted it. Milo pops into the fitting room, tries it on, walks out and you can kind of see his face. He's like, this is it, like I gotta have it. And Milo being the responsible young man he is, you know, realizes he goes, okay, well I have enough for the pant knowingly he, he realized if he walked away you know it's kind of the end of it someone else is going to buy that piece in the next 10 minutes so he went into the fitting room to change and i had my coworker just ring it up he came out of the fitting room i handed him the bag and he looks inside he said oh i i, I can only get one i can only get one i go no you're going to get both you have both save your money for something else i just appreciate you guys coming in here always being kind just do something nice for so each other so you bought him the pants or the i bought top. him the full i bought him the full outfit you bought him yeah. the outfit yeah, yeah. you know yeah. <laughs> you know I, we, we didn't teach that in training no we? no that's, I, I actually think it might have been something you guys said you don't have to do but uh, <laughs> i just thought you know I, I believe in doing nice things for people and just in the little bit of interaction I've had with those two I know that they're good kids and I know they do good things for each other and I think the big thing for me is that freedom to take care of our customers or do things on our own terms that has really been like pretty special to me and I was raised in a way that you know you do something nice for somebody and it's going to come back around. I was the service experience manager, so I answered the phone and it was a lady crying so hard I could barely understand her. We left a sensor on her dress and unfortunately it was her wedding day, so I go into fix it mode, like no problem, okay, where are you? And she says, four and a half hours north in the middle of Idaho. And I'm like, okay, I'll be right there. I'm gonna go find a sensory mover. I'm gonna get in the car. And I didn't even know if I had enough gas in my car or a Diet Coke. I 
just wanted to go fix it. Literally met them in the parking lot. I get out of the car, left the door open. I have the sensor remover. So I'm looking through the ruffles, found the sensor, took it off and she ran away. And I, went, I got back in the car. <laughs> But I'm, I'm really grateful that I was able to take care of that customer, even if she doesn't remember it, because she was just getting ready to walk down the aisle. I felt so good. It all started with one of our loss prevention agents, his name is Eric, and he notices a customer on her hands and knees. He comes to find that this customer has lost the diamond in her engagement ring. And after a couple minutes, they don't find anything. So he, he does what most employees would do. And that's, okay, well, give me your name, your number. If we find it, we'll give you a call. In his mind, he's thinking like, is there a small chance that we might have vacuumed up the diamond? So he approaches two employees. They cut open the bags and literally sifted through all the debris with their fingers. And the most amazing thing about this story, Pete, was... I did not know any of this happened. Eric walks into my office and he's like, hey, do you have a little box? And I was like, for what? Like, what do you need a box for? And then he says, for this. And he pulls out the diamond out of his pocket. And this is, is, is a big diamond, Pete. <laughs> and I was like, where did you get that? And then he proceeds to tell me the story. And he says, so literally, I just need a little box because I don't want to give the customer like the diamond with my fingers. So what was her reaction like? According to Eric, she started crying over the phone. And then, you know, she came into the store. He gave her her diamond. I met her and, you know, she obviously could not thank him enough. And what she said to me, her knowing that somebody cared enough to go through all that trouble, that's what touched her. I've, you know, had those customers that come to me when, you know, they just lost their father, you know, they lost their sister, they, they're coming and shopping for a dress to wear to a funeral. And I really have that opportunity to connect and really wrap my arms around this customer and help them and give them words of encouragement. And it's beyond what I could possibly sell them. You know, I'm really helping them get through the day even. They're just trying to hold it together. And this is something that they have to do is come in and find something to wear to this funeral. And I'm really like making it a much more bearable experience. So Nordstrom in a way has helped me realize what my purpose is. And it's not retail. I kind of in a way become, I don't want to say their therapist, but just someone who cares. So I started working in the lingerie department. I got certified as a prosthesis. My mother has cancer. So I had an experience with a customer last week. A young lady, she, she didn't want to take off her clothes. I said, listen, I'm used to this. I kind of explained to her about my mother. And um, she said, I'm 36 years old and I have terminal breast cancer. I'm surviving. I said, well, let me help you through the experience of being able to put a pretty bra and feel sexy. And she started crying. I'm like, I was holding myself on not to cry with her because I didn't want her to continue feeling unhappy. I said, look, I'm gonna bring you a couple of items that's gonna make you look gorgeous. What brings me joy is for her as a Nordstrom customer, knowing that she has the ability to leave the store with a happy face, it is a big thing. I had a reach out from a blind man and this guy put every bit of trust in me because there was no seeing person with them. And he reached out and told me that he was invited to a wedding. We got him a gorgeous tuxedo. He looked unbelievable. 
when I walked him out, I said to him, how are you getting home? And he said, well, I have this curb app for a taxi. So you can leave. It's okay. I said, no, 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 it's okay. I'll wait. They ended up pulling their cab up across a double street. This driver knows he's blind. And I walked him there. I put him in the taxi and I said to this driver, this is a blind man. Like, how did you not drive around the block? Like, what? I said to him, you better get him home safely. And when he got home, he actually texted me and said, okay, mom, <laughs> I'm home. And I have never, ever since then not walked a blind person across the street that I've seen. And that's the truth. You know, it's like you're in New York, see a million people walking. But when you connect with one person and you see how hard life is, you know, that's big. I tell people all the time, what I'm doing, sometimes it doesn't feel like, you know, I'm going to change the world selling clothing. But at the same time, you can make some really cool connections and impact people in a very special, very different way. You know, it's a big business and oftentimes you get bogged down in all the serious stuff that happens here. But it's also true that we're working with people and all the human things that go with it. And one of the things that we like to embrace and talk about is the humor that goes with it. We have some funny moments that have happened here that we've shared over this year. And here's a few highlights. Oh, I have to mention the first time I saw you at that studio session. Okay. Because I didn't know who you were. You're standing <laughs> on the wall. You had a mask on, okay? And I haven't seen you in three years. The last time I was drinking whiskey at like a dive bar right before you guys, after you guys played. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm like, everybody's making music, whatever. Who is that guy? <laughs> Nobody answers me. Yeah, so I introduced I myself to you. I said, I don't know if you remember, we've met before. But you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so exactly. you were faking it, weren't you? I was faking it. I was probably faking it. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I see you, yeah, yeah I see you, bro. And I was like, you play music? And he's like, yeah, I play the bass. And I was like, huh, let me see your fingers. Oh, and then he shows these fingers, and I was like, oh, you haven't been playing the bass recently, then I guess. Everybody, the entire room stopped what they were doing, and they turned and looked at us. And I was like, what did I do? I got a pair of boots for Christmas and I wore these things to dinner one night and the whole time my heel is hurting and it's like, what, is there a rock in my shoe? Then I get home and I realize a nail from the sole is sticking up <laughs> through the bottom of the shoe. So I went in this shop and I said, hey, I got these shoes for yeah, Christmas and, by and the way, you're, you're with taking me. me with I you. I, this is my errand is I'm going to take Pete with me and return, <laughs> return some shoes. shoes. And I go in and I say, hey, the, these shoes, there's a nail sticking out. I could, do you guys repair your shoes? Well, we don't do that. We don't repair shoes. And I go, okay, well, I'd like to return them. And immediately he said, well, we don't take anything back. And I said, well, wait a minute. It's a brand new pair of shoes. I wore them once and there's a, there's a nail in them. You've got to make this right. And finally he leans over to me and he says, you know what you do? Take them to Nordstrom. They'll take back anything. At which point <laughs> my ears kind of perk up like, huh, 
And then you went with it. I did. I said, well, <laughs> tell me more about this policy. Why, why would Nordstrom take a pair of shoes back that they didn't sell me? Well, I think to be clear what you said, what store would do something like that? Like, who would run a store like that and make up a policy like that? That's right. I think I think I was saying something yes. like, who would be crazy on? enough to run a business no, like that? Right. And he's like, I don't know, but we send people there all the time. <laughs> Costco's takes anybody from Nordstrom's because they give the same kind of service that we give. They take anything back. Yeah. I was in line the other day at Costco. I can't remember what I was doing, but there was a lady returning meat. She'd eaten half her meat. <laughs> they, they take it back? Yes. Wow, that's pretty good. So the New York Times decides that they're going to do this huge feature on Seattle for the style section. And they heard that there was a lexicon of grunge and called me because they wanted to know grunge words to include. So I was like, <laughs> sure, not a problem. Totally beats working right now. So, so and it's just an all example. bullshit. Okay, give me an example. They give you a word and what's your grunge translation of that word? Okay, so they said, all right, so like the big boots that people wear. And I said, kickers. Like, that's not that far off, So, like, right? the Doc Martin shoes you guys yeah. called. Okay. So, but, the, but stuff you're just making up off the top of your head. Yeah. So, I, I did a couple believable ones. And then they were like, well, how about, like, when you get really fucked up? You're out at a show and you're just, like, hammered. And so I said, we call a drunk person a big bag of bloatation or something like that. And he, all I can hear is, like... Like on a keyboard. <laughs> All right. I guess that one's believable. All right. So at the end of the night, what are you guys like? You're all about to go home. Like, I don't know, catch on the flippity flop. They're like, awesome. <laughs> and they printed it verbatim. They never questioned it. I thought at some point the reporter would be like, okay, cut the bullshit. You're just you guys, messing with yeah. me here. And I thought it would end as a joke and they wouldn't run it in the paper. Nope. And then my mom calls me weeks later. Jesus Christ, have you read the paper? I was like, nope, you need to go get the New York Times. I'm like, oh, fuck. So I went down, got a copy. And sure enough, like the whole lexicon is there. Oh I was psyched. Gosh. I was like, oh, yes, I can't believe they did it. Mackerel, they sold it at the commissary. And it was very valuable because people would cook with it. And if you wanted stuff in prison, let's say you wanted someone to do your laundry, you would pay them a mackerel. So then I realized I need to get as many mackerels as I can and I could live pretty well. You know, I could have someone. Make <laughs> I, I hope bed. you had a refrigerator or some because I can't imagine like a pile of mackerels sitting there in your cell. Well, there's, yeah. And, you know, you they were valuable. People wanted <laughs> mackerel. They needed the protein. Lisa was often called upon to be a witness when someone was being detained and waiting for the police department by LP. In this one case, the LP agent had to leave the room and ask Lisa if she could stay with the person who was supposedly handcuffed to the bench. Could you stay with him for a couple minutes because I got to leave the room? And of course, Lisa said, yes, I will do this. Well, apparently, faulty handcuffs or something, the person breaks free and found mace in the top drawer of the office and started spraying. <laughs> As we understand it, the situation required some pretty sophisticated moves. So I, I've had it demonstrated to me, and I'm not going to play that up. There was something about you in your diminutive stature somehow preventing this guy from exiting the door because you were, <laughs> you were playing some defense. 
You stopped the person. You had a job to do. You had a job to do, clearly. That's what we're talking about here, folks. <laughs> Above and beyond, extend yourself. Do more than the job asks. Always think about the company. Think about your team. And by the way, try to avoid the mace. You got to tell the story because I was asking you about this when you first moved to New York and how your accent got in the way of just doing a couple of like normal things. <laughs> uh, what you're getting at is it took me five visits to Bed Bath and Beyond when I was going in and asking for a rubbish bin. Um, <laughs> a rubbish bin. The, yeah. On the fifth time, I was like, you definitely do sell them. I'm not leaving. And then finally someone said, oh, you mean a trash can? I was like, yeah, I mean a trash can. Also, um, <laughs> I remember I would go into a deli and get... Um, avocado on toast but uh, you know I eat it with butter now butter is pronounced with a D here and it was the T that was throwing people off so I would say butter they'd say what <laughs> and then because I was <laughs> emphasizing the T it would go downhill from there I mean I had peanut butter put in it once <laughs> I had, like, had eggs added to it but anyway we met about eight and a half years about ago about eight and a half years mm -hmm. ago and you and I met for breakfast, right? We met for breakfast. I remember what I was wearing. Okay, well, so take it from there then. I was wearing a short sleeve sweater and I kept thinking, shoot, should I not wear short sleeve and show tattoos? Pete Nordstrom. <laughs> really? You were concerned about the tattoos? A little bit. You know, I admittedly, I'd never worked for a big company, you know, and I remember when one of the last times that we talked before, you know, we officially kind of agreed to something, I was getting a tattoo with my two best friends. I was. We were getting <laughs> another best friend tattoo and I didn't like it, but you know, you're sort of with your two best friends and they're like let's do it let's do it and so you're just like okay let's do it you go first and you save me so you me. went first no I went last oh. and you saved me from actually getting the tattoo because I hung up and I was like oh shit that was Pete you know and and I I was like I can't get the tattoo like my head's in another space so, so you're happy now looking back you were yeah, saved from that tattoo yeah because they both erased those tattoos oh okay yeah. well that, then I feel good about that yeah I, th I think dad recollects that we were really hard on you and it developed all kinds of wonderful character well, you know, in you that it didn't develop in me. The, the story he's cling to is that you locked me underneath the stairs. It's like my children You are, rolled him up in a carpet and yes. you locked him underneath the stairs. My kids are horrified <laughs> that, that you were just traumatizing me. And, and We would shove you in there you occasionally. You shove me in there now and there, but it wasn't. Not, not for too long. It wasn't like claustrophobic or... Torture, but the way he tells it, it's like complete emotional harassment. My kids get a kick out of that one too. What, what do they think of, of, of their dad? Well, like, why weren't you nice? Why weren't you nicer to Uncle Eric? He seems so nice. <laughs> we had a business meeting with Madonna, and she's late, and we are young and restless, and so we go out in the parking lot and we're throwing around a little Nerf football. And finally, an assistant opens the door to this hallway that's adjacent to the parking lot and says, uh, oh, she's here. Come on in. It's time to go. I got close to the door and it was propped open. And I thought, could I throw the football into the hallway and then run and catch it in the hallway? So I kind of did a little arc and did that. And when I landed, I felt something next to my shoe and I was wearing thick leather 1920s brakeman boots. I looked down and there's Madonna's dog, this little chihuahua which was all she had in the world at that time. She had no kids, no Guy Ritchie, none of that stuff. <laughs> and this little tennis, like ping pong ball headed chihuahua was right <laughs> next to my boot, like shivering. And I just, my heart went in my throat. I almost just completely crushed her dog. <laughs> so, but Madonna never knew you almost killed her dog with your big boots. She never, <laughs> she never knew, knew. I've okay. told the story. I don't know if she's heard it. Probably not, but... If you're out there, Madonna, I'm sure she listens to this podcast. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. So the, cat, the cat's out of the bag now. 
Now, this hasn't always been true, but within the last couple of decades, it's become increasingly apparent that consumers are looking for more than just great product. They want to know that the company they open their wallets to is behaving ethically, not just in surface level marketing campaigns, but in a real tangible way that's baked into their core values. Whether that's donating to charity or using their public platform to highlight social issues or having an uncompromising attitude towards sustainable, eco-friendly manufacturing. We've been super lucky to partner with a lot of great business leaders dedicated to making a real positive impact on our world. You know, I came from a company where I, I had found this itch and this passion to solve the environmental challenges of our day, of which I, I would say climate change is the existential threat we face as a species, really. And I had chosen to dedicate my life to trying to use entrepreneurship to combat climate change. So I, I most recently spent the better part of a decade at a biotechnology company engineering microalgae and trying to use biotech to convert microalgae into components that could compete with petroleum, but do it with a zero carbon impact. And I was selling into a lot of brands that we now compete with today, and, and as well as a, a huge number of other industries. And what I found was that people said the right thing to get past this sustainability idea, I'm using air quotes, uh, for the consumer, but they weren't actually backing that up with action. And they weren't actually using lower carbon materials when they had the opportunity to. And so connecting my passion for renewable materials and using business to fight climate change and connected that with this design inspiration and insight that Tim brought to the table was a tale of two complementary skill sets and, and now two fantastic friends and business partners that we thought could be much better together than either of us could alone. And fortunately, our wives were quite encouraging of that and uh, set us off down this path. When I was pregnant with my first daughter, I had an allergic reaction to a laundry detergent that is marketed to parents for babies. And I looked up the ingredients and then I did research. And so I learned about untested, potentially harmful chemicals that are in beauty products, that are in baby products, that are in detergents. And so I then went and lobbied on Capitol Hill because I was like, oh my God. And you're doing this as 27 year old that's mm -hmm. pregnant with your first child? You're like, so I was doing all this right research and I was like, I'm bringing this little person into the world. I wouldn't be able to be okay. So it's how did you turn that from, I mean, you, you could imagine that being a mission around just information for people to like, I'm going to actually start a business. So when I went and lobbied on Capitol Hill, they were like, mm, I don't think our voters really care. Mm, I'm not really sure if what you're saying is true. So that's when I was like, I can go and run it, you know, and try and create a nonprofit, but then I'm just begging for the same 10 billionaires for money, or I can just create a for-profit business that stands for this. And hopefully if enough people buy into it, I can help change the marketplace and these companies will have to operate differently. I think we need to figure out as a society and as a culture, and I think businesses can lead the way, how do we turn mental illness disclosure into being no different than physical illness disclosure? You know, how do we celebrate, you know, neurodiversity? There's all kinds of issues with panic and anxiety. There's ADHD, there's Asperger's, there's autism. All these things that affect people who quote unquote don't have a diagnosis, whether that's grief or addiction. It's hard to make it through life and to be able to say I had no, you know, the whole way I had a clean bill of mental health. I'll 
keep this confidential in terms of the name, but I just got this email. Andy, we've never met. I've just finished your book and it forced me to reckon with my ghost. I booked my first psychiatrist appointment in the last four years and I'm trying to be more honest. Thank you infinitely. And the subject line says your book will probably save my life. Well, that's got to make you feel you great. Know? I mean, it's more interesting than pants. Let's put it that way. You know, I spent 13 <laughs> years selling pants and talking about pants and I'm like proud of everything that we built at Bonobos. But I do now sometimes feel like that was a vehicle in part to get to this next chapter of having a chance to tell, you know, the story at the intersection of that startup story and the mental health journey. This company has a long track record of not being afraid to take stands on important social issues or to be out there. And it goes all the way back to the founder, Levi Strauss himself. The very first year he made a profit, he donated a percentage of the profit to a local charity. And he believed since the inception of this company that businesses exist more than just to make a buck for the shareholder, that businesses exist to make a difference in the world, to make a difference in their community. One of my ex-employees came to me in tears. She said, my child has such and such a disease and the only place that can cure him is the Fred Hutchinson Clinic. I said, okay, we're supporting the Fred Hutchinson. I'll get him in there. And he came back a year or two later. He said, you saved my child's life. And I am grateful for the fact that I've been able to use my contacts to save people's lives. The 15% pledge actually came to life a few days after George Floyd was murdered in 2020. And, you know, as someone who owns my own fashion brand, I have a lot of retail relationships and a lot of them were kind of reaching out to me in the wake of George Floyd's murder asking like, oh, should we make a donation to the NAACP or Black Lives Matter or how much should we donate? And I was sort of like, hmm, donations are great. We love philanthropy, but there has to be a bigger, better way that major retailers can actually support the black community and do it by doing what they're best at. And so I posted it to Instagram and then I tagged every retailer I knew. And in that first 12 months, we signed on 28 major retailers and our longest partnership is in fact, drum roll, Nordstrom on a 10 year partnership contract with the 15% pledge. The idea of Good American really came about because, you know, I'd spent the 15 years prior in my career, I'd founded an agency that was an entertainment marketing agency. We had a lot of fashion clients and I was constantly just being asked to, you know, put partnerships together and create castings that kind of, you know, would present this idea of diversity and the idea of inclusivity without actually either the product to back it up and certainly without ever having any executives that mirrored, you know, like the image that was being propelled in these campaigns. And I just thought to myself, wouldn't it be great to start a company that was run by a black woman? So it would be diverse by the very nature of who is making the decisions. And, you know, inclusivity was just not being done. You had plus size clothes and you had regular or missy size clothes, as we say in the industry. And I, that just wasn't my experience of how women want to be spoken to or how women want to address. 
And so Good American was born out of this idea of going, forget what the industry says, forget how the industry wants to separate one size of woman from another size of woman. And I just think that we'll look back at this at five years time and be like, well, of course we did it. What else? Like there was, you know, this was the right time and the right thing to do. And it makes a lot of commercial sense. As WNBA players, as women in this world, where I think it's like 75, 80% people of color in our league, and then it's like 60, 70% maybe, you know, LGBTQ members. So it's just, we have this melting pot. So we, we are actively understanding of all of these issues because they directly impact us. And as athletes, what's unique about us is we have microphones in front of our face. We're asked to do podcasts. We're asked to go on CNN. We're after games, we have press conferences all the time. So we're in a unique position to speak on these types of, of issues, but we're also speaking on them from actual experience, like personal, personal experience. And so in some ways, I think all of us in the WNBA, we, we, we started to figure out in the last couple of years, like, well, if we're not gonna speak on these things, who is? And I also feel an obligation now at this stage in my life to provide a place for people to work and have fun if I don't do that, who's going to do that right now? I'm here while I'm here and healthy and all that stuff. I want to create something that becomes a place where people can be and make a living and make money and do all that. In other words, employs people in a very positive way and provides a future. And I'm kind of in a hurry to do that. Well, that's the show. I hope you enjoyed listening to the 2022 highlight reel. We got a lot of great guests coming up in the new year, so keep an eye out for new episodes every other week. The best way to stay up to date is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to Nordstrom.com slash Podcast, where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you receive great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail. And you just might hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the Nordipod. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with Seattle's own Grammy Award-winning rap artist, Ben Haggerty, better known by his stage name, Macklemore. It was a very intense time period. It was so exciting, you know, to, to watch the thing that you've worked on your entire life finally get discovered by the world. That's a very powerful moment. And yet it's coupled with a complete lack of sleep, a lack of self-care. It led to pure insanity. This is a fascinating conversation detailing Ben's earlier years, grinding it out in a growing Seattle hip-hop scene, struggling with the immediate fame of his massively successful album, The Heist, and learning to combat an addiction that could take it all away. Don't miss this inspiring story next time on The Naughty Pod.